Good to see you all. Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 17. We want to do 17, 18, 19, and 20 is short. It's only got six verses, so I think we can pull this off. So let's just review a little bit. What I find interesting is last Sunday we talked about the first five verses of Isaiah chapter 16, the whole end-day scenario of how the Lord is going to deal with Israel sending them to Jordan, in particular to Petra. And we've got that from verse 1 where it says Selah. Just walk you through the scenario of where Israel's at right now and what's going to happen in the future. And again, one of the main things that I've been pointing out and want us to be sensitive to is that as soon as you get to verse 6 of chapter 16, it switches gears completely and just deals with the judgment of Moab. And we went to Daniel chapter 11. We talked about Edom, Ammon, and Moab being specifically set apart so that the Antichrist could not get to them. And we tied it in with Jesus telling them to flee when they see the abomination of desolation. And here in chapter 16, it gives us and tells us where they flee to. Now, when you put it all together, it's really amazing. And again, 40 authors over 1,500 years of time, and they're all in sync. And it's like connecting the, the dots in one of those puzzles, and it just all fits. And the more that you see that, just how detailed, you come to this realization, man has nothing to do with this book. It's totally impossible. You really can only discover that when you take this approach of studying the Bible simply but seriously. And over time, what happens, the certainty that you have, and it's like our friend David Hawking always says, the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. And all your opinions or insights or what your afterthoughts might be. If people would just get back to working their way through chapter by chapter and verse by verse, over time, there comes a solid foundation and a certainty of stuff that you would think is totally impossible. Let me give you an example. In the tribulation period, one of the judgments is going to be no rain for three and a half years. And you go, well, that's crazy. How could that ever happen? Has that ever happened before? And the answer is, well, yes, it has happened before, and exactly for three and a half years. As a matter of fact, it was the same prophet, Elijah, who spoke to Ahab then, and it'll be the same prophet that the Lord said in the last couple verses of the Old Testament, I'm going to send you Elijah before that great and terrible day of the Lord. And what he does is miraculous miracles, and that just happens to be one of them. So as we make our way through the Bible, and, we, and when we step from the hall in the world, could that ever happen? Well, it's because it's happened before. So as we get into chapter 17, just like last week, we were able to talk about past and future, we're going to find that the same in chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 1, is a prophecy that has never been fulfilled. It speaks of Damascus. Damascus is the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. One of the first references to Damascus, uh, we hear Abraham complaining to the Lord, about uh, leaving his inheritance to Eliezer of Damascus. So we have it mentioned in Abraham's time. When Judy and I were in Arizona a couple of weeks back, we went to the Calvary and uh, 
Apache Junction for one Sunday, and then we went to John Higgins on the other one. And he was an ax, and he was giving Paul, Saul of Tarsus, personal testimony. But he was on the road to Damascus. It was there that Ananias came to him and prayed for him. So we have Damascus jumping up out of the scriptures. But what this here is, it's twofold. Before I read verse 1, it says, Prophecies against Damascus and Samaria. So they're intertwined, and we have something that's going to be yet future in verses 1, and then in the last verse, verse 14, ties in with it. And again, I went, been going out of my way to show you this is not uncommon. Uh, the example I used last week was Isaiah 61, and between a comma, where the Lord finished quoting right in the middle of a sentence, he says, this is fulfilled right now, when he went to his hometown of Nazareth. But he couldn't finish the sentence and that great and terrible day of the Lord because that hasn't happened yet. But it's all part of the same sentence. So as we study Isaiah, what you want to be sensitive to and open to is the Lord can, in one sentence, be talking about something prophetic in the future and then see something that we're going to read here that's going to be fulfilled past tense, where it's already happened. So this judgment against Damascus and uh, Syria, they're linked together. And one of the reasons they're linked together is that they would often make a confederacy between Syria and Israel, and often to go after Judah in the south. Because they're linked together that way, uh, their partners in crime means their, their judgment is per pronounced equally, and the Lord ties them together here. So verse 1, the burden against Damascus. It says, Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. The cities of Eror, this will be like a suburb of Damascus, are forsaken. They will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. I'm just going to stop there and tease you a little bit uh, because this is where we're going on Sunday. And what's heavy about it is this could happen tomorrow very, very easily. The stage is set because Assad is the president of Syria, and right now he has the backing of the Iranian government, but also Putin has boots on the ground. And then you have ISIS. And then uh, what we're going to try to lay out to you, and I had Mary do quite a bit of research today, and um, just a little bit where we're going on Sunday, how the stage is so set uh, for this to literally happen because it's already what's, what's happened in Syria is the uh, largest human tragedy in our lifetime. And uh, instead, it's not part of the daily news, but just yesterday, 160 people were killed by ISIS in Syria. Some of them were beheaded, some of them were shot. And uh, then they took 400 prisoners. How many of you heard that? Not, not too many, but that's what happened yesterday. And we have, um, well, what I'm saying is uh, there's nothing like it on the planet today. And... Um, you know, Europe right now is overrun with refugees. It's a big political issue. And the, the amount of people that have been killed are in the hundreds of thousands. 
and uh, in the hundreds of thousands that are, are fleeing. And it's all about what country? Syria. So now we're reading a prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled because it's still inhabited. And, um, but you don't have to look very hard, very far to see that this could literally happen at the drop of a hat. All it's got to, well, I'm going to stop right there. And if you want to know more about that, you're going to have to show up on Sunday morning. That's all there's to it. Now we're going to go ahead because what we have here is, um, it'll get into the reasons, but that has not happened yet. So here's a good example, again, of a prophecy that is yet future, even for us today, but a lot of this has already been fulfilled. Verse 3, um, let's read 3 through 9. It says, The fortress also will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria, they will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. In that day it will come to pass <clears throat> that the glory of Jacob will wane and the fatness of his flesh grow lean. It shall be as when the harvester gathers the grain and the reapers the heads with his arm. It will be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley of Rapham. Yet Gleaning grapes will be left in it, like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives at the top of the uttermost bough, four or five in its most fruitful branches. In other words, very, very barren will be the results of the judgment, says the Lord God of Israel. And that day, a man will look to his maker, and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. And he who will not look to the altars, the works of his hands. He will not respect with his, what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. And that's what they had fallen back into. Uh, the northern uh, tribes uh, called uh, of, uh, of Israel, Ephraim. Uh, reference, Ephraim was a, the name of one, one of the 12 tribes. It's, a, it's the name of a mountain. And context here, when it talks about Israel, it's talking about those 10 northern tribes that line up with Syria, and now God's pronouncing his judgment because they simply got into uh, this idolatry. Now, verse 10 gives us the reason uh, for this. Isaiah's uh, talking to the nor northern kingdom of Israel, and what he says has been literally fulfilled. And... Um, Let's read verse 10, because. So everything we've read so far, now the Lord's going to explain. Because you've forgotten the Lord, the God of your salvation, and you have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold. Therefore, you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. In the day you make your plant to grow, and in the morning you will make your seed to flourish, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas and like the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the, the rushing of many waters. But God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind. 
like the roaring things before them. Now this literally happened. We have Assyria, and this is the power uh, at the time. And this judgment is going to uh, happen directly to Ephraim or the ten northern tribes. But having said that, we're still stuck with verse 1 not being fulfilled. And when it happens, I believe verse 14 gives us the timing. And I find it interesting because it's, again, one of those judgments that happens overnight and everything changes. So in verse 14, we read, And behold, at evening time trouble, and before the morning he is no more, and this is a portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. When Assyria finally did fall, the power that we're talking about here, that the Lord is using as his instruments to deal with Syria, to deal with Ephraim or the northern ten tribes, Basically, he's telling us the reason for this is because of their idolatry. They'd forgotten the Lord. Every one of the, I think it's 19 or 20, I can't remember. But when you read the historical accounts of the kings of Israel, and when I say Israel, I'm talking about the 10 northern tribes, the reoccurring phrase goes something like this. They did evil in the sight of the Lord, did according to the sins of their father, Jeroboam. And he was the one who set up the golden calf at Bethel and the golden calf up in Dan. And he caused the people to fall into, <laughs> of all things, the worship of a golden calf. And so what we have in chapter 17 is a prophecy. Isaiah is about 700 B.C., somewhere in there that could be fulfilled literally next week. I certainly believe in my lifetime the tragedy and the scope of the tragedy of Syria right now. We'll, we'll develop that again on uh, Sunday morning and the probability of it and the likelihood of it happening. How is it going to happen? Overnight. We have the technology to do that in the days that we live. Chapter 18 deals with the prophecies with Ethiopia uh, in Africa. Read down to verse 3. Woe to the land shattered with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, which send ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reed and of water, saying, Go swift messengers. And this is interesting. A nation tall and smooth of skin, and that's going to be repeated in verse 7, that we have a description which we usually don't have, of a people tall and of smooth skin. And I wonder if this is a good time to do this. To a people terrible for their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divided. Let me just talk a little bit about the Ethiopian Jews. To do that, let's go to Acts chapter 8. Talk a little bit about Ethiopians. Whenever we're in Israel, they stick out like sore thumbs because they're black. But they're some of the most beautiful people I've ever seen. And they're unusually tall and lanky. And uh, some of the most beautiful women that I've ever seen happen to be Ethiopian Jewish women. And when they go to the Wailing Wall to pray, they all come as a group. 
And they, of course, stick out because they're, they're dark colored. But the fact that the Lord would mention that they're tall and that they're smooth skin, I, I think they're a better way of interpreting that is fair skin or beautiful to behold. And they really are just a beautiful people. And in Acts chapter 8, of course, we have um, the beginning of the church. We have revival breaking out. We have one of the deacons who was just waiting on the tables that the Lord raised up to be an evangelist. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do, whatever circle you're in. Here's a guy who waited on tables, but he had the gift of being an evangelist. And um, you might think, well, you know, I'm not a pastor. I'm not, uh, I don't have that gift. So we're told that we should be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have at any time and any moment. That would be a good place for an amen. Thank you. And here we we have an, an encouragement of Philip, who's just an average guy, Greek name. Verse 26, it says, The angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, I want you to rise um, and towards the south and go down to Jerusalem, to Gaza, with the desert. Today we call it the Gaza Strip. Well, he was being used mightily in Samaria. People were getting saved, miracles were being done, demons were being cast out. And the Lord wanted him to leave revival because a guy had come all the way from Ethiopia. He was in the, in the government under Candace the Queen. And he, he was what I would call today a seeker. He went to Jerusalem looking. And um, he just didn't find what he was looking for. And now he's on his way home. Anybody who has a heart, who really wants to know, and is sincere in their search, I will guarantee you that the Lord will send that a person into your life and especially if you're praying. And uh, he will create the divine appointment. And that's what we've got to be sensitive to. That's the one thing that uh, Chuck would often say. He'd, he'd look at his calendar and go, well, here's, here's my plans for today. But Lord, I want you to know this, that you have the freedom anytime. If you've got something else that you want to do, help me be flexible to just change my schedule just like that so I can be open. Well, here's a great example right here. Uh, he leaves, and he doesn't even have, the Lord doesn't even tell him why. I would have said, a lot going on here, Lord. You sure you don't want me to stay? He doesn't give him the answer to, to plan B until he obeys plan A. And I think this is really something to, to consider. When the Lord asks us to take a step of faith sometimes, he doesn't always show us why until we actually get there. So he, he does it. In 27, he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of the, her whole treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, but he doesn't know the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't know that he has sent his son, that the Messiah has arrived on the scene. He doesn't know any of this. He's going back home still searching. And he's searching in the right places because as he's going home, he's reading. He's sitting in his chariot and he's reading Isaiah. Huh. 
What are we doing tonight, gang? Well, we're reading Isaiah. So here's an Ethiopian coming home empty-handed, empty-hearted, and he's reading Isaiah. And then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. Okay, all of a sudden, Philip, just being obedient to the Lord, knows why he's there. It has something to do with the guy up there reading the book. So Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he said, hey, do you have any idea what you're reading? And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in the scripture, which he just happened by coincidence to be reading, is some of the most um, blatant scriptures about the Messiah and the Lord Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. It says, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb silent before his shears, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? Isaiah 53. And the eunuch uh, answered Philip and said, I'm asking you, what's the prophet talking about, of himself or somebody else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. He explained the whole thing. This is when the Lord stood before um, his accusers. And like a lamb, he didn't justify or rationalize or try to work his way out of it when he was before Pilate. And uh, so he has the gospel clearly presented to him as he's on his way back home. Now, what's not implied be between verse 35 and 36 is that he explained to him, we would say he was witness to. And um, he explained to him that when a person comes to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Savior, that they should identify themselves to Christ by being baptized. That's why we believe and teach in baptism after conversion. The Bible doesn't teach infant baptism. It's always believe first and then be baptized. And that's always the order. And so he explained that to this Ethiopian who was reading the book of Isaiah. Because as they went down the road, they came to some water, and he was like, there's some water right there. Why can't I be baptized? And then Philip said, and here's a condition for anybody to be baptized. Now, if you're a believer and you've never been baptized, well, you should be. Why? The question is, well, why should I be? Well, the answer is because the Lord said so. How's that for an answer? Go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? Baptizing them, right? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So if, it's, if you're struggling with it, don't. Just be obedient to it. It's an act, a simple act of obedience. I didn't, you know, for me personally, I didn't get it. Uh, my first two years in the Lord, uh, I wasn't rooted and grounded. Love the Lord. I knew I was saved. But it wasn't until I was baptized, somebody just took me to the scriptures finally, and says, Wait, why haven't you been baptized yet? I don't know. I was baptized when I was a kid. It's just infant, not knowing as a young believer. You're just learning your ABCs. 
Hebrews 6 talks about the elementary principles and the doctrines, and one of them is the doctrine of baptism. It's actually a doctrine. It's an elementary principle. It's your ABCs. For me personally, it was a little bit different because I got baptized in water and the Holy Spirit all at the same time. And for me, it was uh, the sa- at the same time. And you can't confine the Lord or put him in a box. He'll do it any way he wants to. And the order can be different. Um, Cornelius, when he was saved, he got baptized in the Holy Spirit first. And all the Jews saw this. They couldn't believe that. And then um, Peter said, well, you know, as long as he's baptized in the Holy Spirit, why, why can't he be now be baptized in water? What? This is unthinkable. A Gentile getting saved, but the evidence was, was there. So here's the condition. If you believe with all your heart, you're made. And then he made that public confession. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, baptized him. And when he came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip so that the eunuch saw him no more. Philip disappeared. Mini rapture, just 20 miles north, where he ended up at Ozetus. And, um, and Philip um, goes to Ozetus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities, and he came to Caesarea. Well, we were just in Caesarea. We our first day of touring, we went to the exact amphitheater where the Apostle Paul stood before King Agrippa. It's an A spot. It's still there. After 2,000 years, you can go to the very place that Paul gave his defense and uh, petitioned to um, go to Rome. And um, so let's go back to, um, to Isaiah, because that's where we are. We are reading Isaiah and chapter 18. And we're talking about Ethiopians. And there are Ethiopians in, in Israel today. Now verse 3 says, All the inhabitants of the world and the dwellers on the earth, when he lifts up a banner on the mountain, you see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you hear. Now this banner, um, sometimes... Students consider the uh, emblem here mentioned to be uh, the Ark of the Tabernacle, which was later transferred to the temple. It disappeared about the time of the Babylonian captivity, and there's a tradition that says it was carried to Ethiopia. Now, how many of you have heard that? You can actually go online and Google this, and it'll show you the building, and it's guarded 24-7. They actually claim to have the Ark of the Covenant, in this building. I personally do not um, believe it's there. I'll tell you why. I'll do a little sidetrack here. Um, Rabbi Richman, I've known for over, oh, geez, oh, 35 years, and um, he is the head of the Temple Mount Institute, which is dedicated um, itself to the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, while we were there, they were explaining to us that, that the candelabra stands this tall, and uh, 
has a million dollars worth of gold in it. And it's sitting in a plexiglass overlooking the Temple Mount and, and the Wailing Wall. And then it has all the, the garments and it has the trumpets. And um, then when you go to the last room, they have a replica of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, um, I remember having coffee with Rabbi Richmond. I've told this story be before, so bear, use who have <laughs> heard it, bear with it for those who haven't heard it. And um, I was told that uh, there was a rabbi named Rabbi Getz who, before they stopped and tunneling underneath the Temple Mount, uh, maybe you don't remember this, but there was a big incidence where people actually died because um, the Jews were actually doing tunneling underneath the Temple Mount, and it caused a big ruckus. People were, were killed as a result of it, and it stopped it. But before it's, it was stopped, Rabbi Getz claims to have found the chamber where the Ark of the Covenant is. Now, for the last several years, when we take a group through the Temple Mount Institute, I remember a couple of years ago, I asked the leader of the tour specifically about if they had any information about the whereabouts of the Ark of the Covenant possibly being under the Temple Mount. And um, she said no, and I said, well, are you familiar with Rabbi Getz and his statements about seeing the Ark of the Covenant? So I was told this by Rabbi Richmond, and I said, okay, is the, I, um, we're sort of on a friendship basis. I call him Jaime. And um, I said, you're a rabbi. I said, I want you to look me square in the eyes as a rabbi, friend to friend, man to man, and you tell me that uh, Rabbi Getz knows the location of the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, that's exactly what I'm telling you. But yet, when we questioned the people that were leading the tour, no longer than two years ago, when I would bring up Rabbi Getz, oh, no, 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 we don't know anything about that at all. Well, the following year, we went back, and now they're saying, well, you know, Rabbi Getz claims to have uh, knowledge of where the Ark of the Covenant is. Now, this year, and all my years of going, is the only year we didn't have a guide. It was all automated. So you would go into one room, and they would through a loudspeaker, explain, now here's, here's the breastplate and the stones that's already made so that when we, when we reestablish the priesthood, and we know it's going to be reestablished, right? Second Thessalonians talks about the daily sacrifices being taken away. Well, in order to have sacrifices, you've got to have priests. And so they're doing DNA research to find out who was a Kohen and what tribe... Um, you can, you come from, whether or not you're of the tribe of Levi. By the way, did you know that you can find out exactly today what your nationality is, what different degrees? My brother just um, he adopted uh, 16, 17 years ago, um, Mariah, and she's from Russia. But uh, we really don't know her background. He really wanted to know. So he did one of these DNA tests to find out. They thought, I'm going to do one for myself too. Well, the Deauville family, we always thought we were German and French, period. But he did a DNA for himself, and it comes back, and 
and uh, he, he sends me this email, and I find out that I'm more Irish than I am French or German. And then it slices it up and, and says most of your ancestry is Northern European, and then it breaks it up into pies and, and it gives you the percentage of where they can trace your DNA. It's just an amazing thing. Well, they're doing that to determine if you're qualified to serve in the priesthood. Now, at the end, when we got to the last, two, we didn't have a guide. When they were speaking about the Ark of the Covenant this time, the first year and all the years I've been going there, this is what they said. They said, we know the location of the Ark of the Covenant. It's underneath the Temple Mount. And I'm thinking, I just figured out why they don't have a guide. Because you make a statement like that, you're going to get questions. Is everybody tracking with me? Some people would say, say what? <laughs> what did you just say? You know, you know where the Ark of the Covenant is, and that's the statement that was made. I asked a girl, I purposely phoned somebody that worked there afterwards, and I said, I've been coming here for over 30 years. I've watched you go from this building to this building to this building, and I've known Rabbi Richmond for that long. And I heard something today that's never been said before. And I want to know why. Well, we're not really sure. I said, I know what I heard in the last room that I was just in. And they're still trying to dance around it. Um, here, the rumor is that this emblem is could be a reference to the Ark of the Covenant being in Ethiopia. I personally don't hold to that position. Okay, I got a little sidetracked there. Um, let's... Go on. Verse four. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest and I will look for my dwelling place like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of a harvest. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. And they will be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth and for the birds of prey with summer on them and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. Now, in that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall, smooth of skin and from a people terrible from the beginning onward a nation powerful treading down whose ever land the rivers divide, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts to Mount Zion. Now, um, in chapter, uh, I want to turn to um, Psalm 87 at this point, verse 4, because the verses that we just read talks about judgment happening to Ethiopia. But then from se verse 7, Clearly, now we've jumped ahead again. And remember, I wanted you to be sensitive to where now they're going to Mount Zion. What, why are they going there? Well, um, basically to worship the Lord. We'll see that in chapter 19. But if you're in Psalm 87, it's only seven verses long. This psalm is a psalm of the glorious city of God. 
during the kingdom age. So we actually sing this. Uh, his foundations in the holy mountain, the Lord loves the gates of Zion. Richard Bray took the psalm and put it to music, and we liked it so much we sold it. More than all the dwellings of Jacob, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God, Selah. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon. To those who know me, behold, O Philistia and Tyre, and who? Ethiopia. This one was born there. And of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High shall establish her, the Lord will record when he registers the people. This one was born where? Well, this one was born in Ethiopia. Interesting today that you go to Jerusalem and you see these tall, fair-looking people and they're Ethiopian Jews. I believe that many of them will recognize the Messiah. Uh, during the first three and a half years. Verse 7, both the singers and the players on instruments say, all your springs are in you. In you. All right, chapter 19. Prophecies against Egypt. And remember, in these chapters 13 through 23, present 11 judgments against the nations that surround the nation of Israel. The burden of Egypt is going to be the sixth burden. And the history of, of Egypt goes way back. Let's pick it up and um, just read verse 1. The burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will totter at his presence. And the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. And the history of Egypt with Israel goes all the way back to Joseph, him being raised up, second most powerful man. And uh, then it says there arose a, a pharaoh that didn't know Joseph. The descendants, when his father came, and they began to multiply in the land, they became a threat to the Egyptians. So they put them into bitter bondage. Everybody's here seen the Ten Commandments, right? Charles and Heston arriving on the scene being sent by the Lord after 400 years. Just put that in perspective. Being a slave, being delivered out of this bitter bondage, and the Lord happened to use Moses. But the idols of Egypt even talked about in the New Testament that the miracles that Moses did, Janus and Jambri were told in the New Testament, they had the ability to duplicate up to a certain point the same miracles that Moses was doing. So when it says the idols of Egypt and the heart of Egypt and how they were deeply involved with the occult, as a result, um, God brought judgment upon them. And it's interesting that their army also fell in one day. Uh, verse 2, I will set... Egyptians against Egyptians, and everyone will fight against his brother and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Now, about the time that Isaiah was writing this, several pharaohs arose who could no longer control, have control over the great kingdom. 
and the armies no longer obeyed them. The people no longer respected the government. This caused the setting up of a weak city-state that were self-governing for a period of time. So this literally happened, literally was fulfilled. Verse 3 and 4, The spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. I will destroy their council, and they will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. It's interesting to me that when you read about Moses, it says that he was trained and all the wisdom of Egypt. And that makes me just wonder how much did, did Moses actually know about both sides? About what, what does that mean, the wisdom of the uh, mediums and the sorcerer and the depths of the occultism that, um, that is in Egypt? So in these verses here, uh, it says, Because of this, I will give into your hands a cruel master and a fierce king will roll over them says the lord of hosts we really don't know who this character is definitively in history um and uh, the commentators that i read today refuse to comment on it except to say that they're not sure so let's take it down to verse 7 the judgments therefore the waters will will fail from the sea and the rivers will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul. This is a reference to the Nile River. And the brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. Then it says the reeds and the rushes will wither. And the papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river. And everything sown by the river will wither, be driven away, and be no more. I'm going to stop and get personal with verse 7, where it says papyrus. It was known as one of the, their great trades. Papyrus is the first form of material that was made in history, as far as we know, where you could write on it. I've been to Egypt twice, and when I'm, I'm going to put up, I'm holding a picture up right now, but you can't see it, so it's up on the screen right now. And what you're looking at, see the frayed edges on the top? That's papyrus. And in its time, it was one of their major exports. And it's really one of the first, you know, we're known here in the Fox Valley as being a paper town, right? Well, Egypt was known as the place. And the quality and the work and the discovery uh, here is uh, this is real papyrus. I bought this when I was uh, on one of our side trips to Israel. We spent three days and went to um, see the pyramids. And, and when you go there, the only places today that have papyrus are the wealthier colonial houses inside the city of Cairo. Cairo is, I don't know what to say, the dirtiest uh, smog-filled place that I can think of. I don't know. I can't remember how many millions of people live in, in Cairo. Um, the museum is off the charts as far as um, a museum goes and the history that they've gleaned from, from there went inside the pyramids. But this was one of the souvenirs that I brought back. And when 
we were on the Nile, you see them using it as, um, oh, they would use it for irrigation and they would drain from the Nile and then they would have their irrigation ditches and they don't have papayas anymore, but they're, it's very, very fertile as far as being able to grow things because of the water of the Nile. But the Lord is saying, here, I'm going to dry up all your reeds. Well, that's been done. Go there now and you're not going to find it. And no longer is fish in the industry. Verse 8, the fishermen will also mourn and they will lament to cast hooks into the rivers and they will languish who spread nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed. That's what this is here, the weaving of the papyrus. And its foundation will be broken and all who makes wages will be troubled of soul. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools, pharaohs, wise counselors give foolish counsel. Now, in this verse 11 here, the royal line of the pharaohs was so intermarried that actually brothers marrying sisters that it produced offsprings that they were fools. They were just morons because of the crossbreeding. And God said it was going to happen. And that's a, um, a fact also of history. 12 through 15. Um, where are they? Where are the wise men? Let them tell you now and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The prince of Zon has have become fools. The princes of Nope are, are decided. They have also deluded Egypt, those who are the mainstay of its tribes. The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst, and they have caused Egypt to err in all of her works as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Neither will there be any work for Egypt, which the head or tail, palm branches or bulrushes may do. So again, here now, it's, it's speaking of uh, the judgment that um, took place against Egypt. Verse 16 through uh, 18, uh, in that day Egypt will be like a woman and will be afraid and fear because of the, the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he waves over it. And the land of Judah will be a, a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. In that day, five cities of the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. So 16 through 18, in that day, places this now into the future. And that day, Egypt will be afraid like a woman. And it probably is in reference to them being involved in the great tribulation period. Again, in Daniel 11, it talks about the kings, the Antichrist being concerned about the kings of the south and them being somehow involved in that last day scenario. So 16 through 18 is unfulfilled prophecies probably taking place uh, during the Great Tribulation period, now 19 and 20. 
In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. Now, some people read this verse as far as a monument and right away you think of the pyramids. And I've heard people actually say that's what this verse is about. Well, uh, the pyramids are not a monument to the Lord. They are a monument and mausoleums of the pharaohs. And um, we've been inside of them. And that's not what we have in view here. In that day, future tense, there will be a monument in the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And I believe what this is, is literally the cross will be the place to which Egypt will look instead of the crescent. And the sign here is actually a sign that the early Christians when they were undercover, they were, you see the side of a fish. Um, I don't put fish on the back of my car because um, when I went to meet with uh, pastors in Chicago Sunday afternoon, I have to confess my sin publicly. <laughs> Speed limit now is 70. You know what that means to me? Yeah, 75 to 80. <laughs> and did I break the law? I confess, I broke the law. For that reason, I do not put fish on the back of my car. <laughs> All right, guilty as charged, but I made great time. Everybody's in watching a ball game on Sunday afternoon and met with the guys for a good five hours on, on Monday. We had a great meeting and um, talked shop and business and what the Lord's doing in, in the different states. Just great fellowship. And then uh, made it back in three and a half hours again. All right, that's all the personal, no more personal stuff for me on tonight. Let's finish our chapter. So the cross will be set up as a sign. And um, that, at that time, uh, the nation will be known for being Christian in the, in the future. And um, it will be a sign for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And they will cry to the Lord, because of the oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a mighty one, and he will deliver them. And the Lord will be known to, to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and make sacrifice and offerings. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord, and they will perform it. All right, in verse uh, 21 and 22, and the Lord will strike Egypt, he will strike it and heal it. They will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and heal them. Turn with me to Zechariah. Zechariah is right before Malachi, the last Old Testament book, chapter 14, where we read about Egypt during the millennial reign. A blessing is yet to come to Egypt. And when we read a little bit farther, we're going to read about a highway in verse 23 that will be built. But let's pick it up, chapter 14, Zechariah, verse 16. It says, it will come to pass that everyone who is left of the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to, to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles 
is commemorating how God supernaturally protected them in the wilderness for 40 years. And it was to be remembered every year so that they'd never forget that God brought them out of Egypt, delivered them from bondage, and provided food and water for them for 40 years uh, by miracles. And verse 17, And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. Now verse 18. And this, I think, is a hypothetical question. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plagues which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. He could have picked any nation, but he chooses to mention Egypt. Let's say that they decide not to come up and they rebel. Remember, during this period of time, the Lord is ruling and reigning with what? A rod of righteousness to reinforce. Verse 19, this shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the, of the horses, on the pots of the Lord's house shall be like bowls before the altar. And as far as Egypt is concerned, they're going to set up a sign, an emblem, and I believe it's a cross. And that will be set up as you enter into the land of Egypt. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judea shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. And that day there shall be no longer be a Canaanite in the house, in the, in the house of the Lord of hosts. All right, let's go back we, and finish with chapter 20, which is only, I believe... Six verses long. Now, the last thing that we're reading here in verse, let's pick it up in verse 23. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptian will serve with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be one of the three with Egypt and Assyria even a blessing in the midst of the land. So now we have this highway. What's the highway for? Well, because Zechariah says every year they're going to come from the nations, from the north and from the south. There will be this major freeway that leads to Jerusalem so that, the, that uh, they can come and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, verse 25, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So again, it's a beautiful picture. Uh, but what chapter 20, uh, the one thought of chapter 20 is that in three years, Egypt would be invaded. Chapter 9 is the close of the high note of the future blessing of Egypt in the Millennial Kingdom. And this chapter predicts coming events in the near future, which will prove the reliability of Isaiah as a prophet of God. But in chapter 20, it talks about back to the burden or the judgment against Egypt. Let's pick it up in verse 1. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, 
when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it. At the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Now go, and I want you to remove your sackcloth from your body. I want you to take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, and he walked naked and barefoot. Hmm. And then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years. <laughs> I just have a, I, my mind just stops, and I got to think for a second, because I have a visual of a naked prophet walking around naked for three years, and uh, as a sign against Egypt and Ethiopia. Verse 4 So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners, and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt. And then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitants of this territory will say in that day, surely such is our expectation, wherever we Flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. How shall we escape? Past tense. So what we read here happened three years later. Let's just go back to where we closed on Sunday and go back to chapter 14. What we read tonight and what I want to set the stage for for Sunday as we close up right now is this yet you know, unbelievable prophecy that in one day Damascus is going to cease to exist, the oldest inhabited city in the world. is prophesied here. And that is going to happen. So you want to say amen? Let me back it up with verses that we closed with on Sunday. And again, as we go through the scriptures, being sensitive that as we study them, much of the book of Isaiah deals with uh, yet unfulfilled prophecies. And this is one of the biggest one here. Detailed information about where they're going to go in chapter 16 in Petra. But in chapter 14, verse 26, again, reaffirming, the Lord says, this is the purpose that is purpose against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed. Who's going to annul it? And he is stretched out. His hand is stretched out. Who's going to turn it back? Gang, as we close tonight, just know that if the Bible foretells it, there is no force in the universe that can stop it from happening. We, we said on Sunday that, yes, the Antichrist is going to be successful in hurting the apple of God's eyes, but his purpose is going to try to destroy them, and that's not going to happen. The remnant is going to be preserved supernaturally in Petra, and the Lord is going to go fight for them. Isaiah 63, his blood, when we get to 63, we'll go through that again. The whole war that will take place when they finally recognize it was Jesus all along. And then as Jesus said, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're finally broken. 
at the end of the tribulation in Petra, they finally say, Lord, help. And the Lord says, that's when I'm going to come. And that's when he will come. For you and I, we have a greater promise that he has not appointed us to this period of time that we're talking about. He said, pray that you be counted worthy to escape those things that are coming upon the earth. Well, how do you do that? Well, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we're told in Revelation. So that is interesting. The shame of our nakedness would not be exposed. And here's one of the things that the Lord did. I want them to realize that they're going to be ashamed. So Isaiah, you get to go in the buff for three years preaching. That had to be quite a sight, and it had to leave quite an impression. But he says, in three years, it's going to happen. Three years, it happened. The Lord has purposed it, and nobody can change it. Amen? We're at our time. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we are so glad for the certainty of this book. It gives us meaning and purpose in life. Lord, it satisfies, as we sing that song, you satisfy our soul. But nothing really truly satisfies us like just having a good meal from the Word of God. And Lord, as we've gone through these four chapters tonight, we're so grateful for the Scriptures because it speaks to us where we're at right now, knowing that Isaiah 17 could happen this week. It really is mind-boggling, but you've said it, and it's going to happen. And we see that stage being set. And you've told us in Hebrews that when we see these things begin to happen, to look up because our redemption is drawing nigh. Thank you so much for that blessed hope, Lord. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen and amen.